Welcome back. This is the fifth season of Home Stories from L.A., and I'm glad you're here. This season, once again, Home is a member of the Boing Boing Podcast Network, and you can learn more at boingboingpodcasts.com. And for more information on this show, including show notes for every episode, you can visit homestories.la. Audio assistance for the show was provided by Samir Sengupta. And Home's social media marketing is powered by Social Vita, changing the way businesses connect with their followers with smarter, faster, and more efficient social media strategy. Socialvita.io. So we're at the end of Mulholland Highway. Um, the pavement stops right here in front of the house and turns into a dirt road that actually leads into Griffith Park. Um, we have, as you can see, the sign right behind the lot. Uh, and all that land behind the lot and coming around, this is all park. This is all part of Griffith Park. And so this is literally the last house on Mulholland. Pretty cool, right? <laughs> This is Home, Stories from L.A. I'm Bill Barold. How are we going to live in 20 years? Or 50? Or 100? What's going to matter in the places we call home? How will our lives change and our ways of living? And how will the places we live adapt to keep up? Maybe all those questions boil down to just one. How do we get from here to there? Is it a slow drip of incremental changes that we barely notice until one day we wake up and find ourselves living in the future? Or do we occasionally get the chance to think hard and clearly and well about how to direct those changes? This is a story about that process. A lot of things had to come together just right to lead to the outcome I'm going to tell you about. There had to be the right design, the right designers, a one-of-a-kind piece of land that offered its own particular challenges and opportunities, and maybe most crucially, a landowner who had a notion about how to connect the dots. Uh, my name is Steve Alper, and uh, I, I'm passionate about improving the things that uh, I am in control of. Steve's a dentist in Manhattan. He grew up in Southern California, moved away, did well. A couple of years ago, he began looking around for a piece of land on which he might someday build a house to live in once he sold his practice and moved home to Los Angeles. He was shown the Mulholland plot, and he knew right away he was looking at something very unusual. Well, the location. The location is... is, is, is everything for this uh, and there's a separate, there's a couple parts of it too you know there's it's underneath the Hollywood sign and it's actually the closest the closest you can get to the front of the Hollywood sign so it's a very popular place for people to come and uh, take selfies um, and it's also it's at the end of a highway at the end of Mulholland Highway it's underneath the radio towers uh, for the city um, so it to me it just it's this it's right in the middle of the city, and it's about communication. It communicating people and cars and signals, even signals to space. Um, 
and and it's got that sign uh, that communicates a, a whole bunch of things that you know we can we can have shows and shows about about you know what the sign means to people or how it's evolved. Uh, so so for me, it's just a location that everybody is looking at and watching. So it's uh, so that's what that's what makes it special. So he bought the land in the spring of 2015. Now he had a problem. He knew he wanted to build something special, that the site almost required it. But he also knew he couldn't afford to build something as special as the site demanded. Not without some help. That's when he started thinking about another project on another unique plot, five miles down the road in the Hollywood Hills. The, the whole concept comes from a project that was done in 1959, 1960, called the Chemosphere. It's a building, uh, it was designed by John Lautner. It's in Studio City. It's on a pole, and it's like a saucer. It's a very famous house, and it's called the Chemosphere because the Chemseal Corporation sponsored it for, the, for naming rights. Um, and that's how this gentleman, uh, Leonard Malin, who had the land at the time, that's how he developed that house. And he lived in it with his kids, you know, and his family for a while. Um, so it was knowing about that and the history of that, it just it, 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 I, I thought, hey, I could do that here, where really everybody is watching it, where the naming rights and the design rights and you know things like that would be uh, very valuable, and I could leverage that into making something truly special. You've seen the chemosphere, probably. It was featured in the Brian De Palma movie Body Double, and it inspired the house that Troy McClure lives in in The Simpsons. It actually had two corporate sponsors. Southern California Gas Company was the other one. They provided the Malin family free heating for a time in exchange for the right to feature the house in their print advertisements. The Chemseal people donated the special building materials that Lautner's design required. In other words, naming rights, brand sponsorship. This was how Steve was going to get his house built. He could see it so clearly, a parade of people trooping to the very end of Mulholland, as they already do, and lining up their selfies with the Hollywood sign in the background. And there, in the foreground, big as life, and bigger than he could otherwise afford, his house. The Apple, last house on Mulholland. The Google, last house on Mulholland. Or maybe Tesla, you know, because uh, it's just so sunny up there all the time. And, they, you know, their roofs and their battery packs. And, uh, you know, maybe they'll put a car in front on the carport or something. But that'll just be in that picture. And so, you know, the, the last house on Mulholland powered by Tesla or whatever, uh, that's, that's just going just gonna to keep repeating itself back into the Internet through social media. It's that, that organic reach that uh, you just, it's, it's, very difficult to buy, but it's so valuable for brand uh, storytelling on the internet. How to get it done, though. That was the thing. How to get from where he was, with the most spectacular, undeveloped piece of land anybody could ever not yet afford to build on, to where he wanted to go, to attracting the attention of the name sponsor who would make it all possible, and into the bargain because Steve is a guy with a passion for architecture, sparking a conversation about what an L.A. house could and should be, about design, lifestyle, 
and iconicity. You know, when Steve first told me in the introductory email, um, I own the property that's closest to the Hollywood sign, I kind of said, okay, well, really? And then I looked it up right when he gave me the address and it really is. Um, it's the closest property to the Hollywood sign and I think that should be reflected in, in what's built there. That's Nick Graham. Nick lives in Seattle and we spoke by Skype. He's one of the founders of an architectural research initiative called Arc Out Loud. Um, and through architecture competitions, interviews, um, printed publications, we try to interact with designers all around the world um, and mostly test the limits of design's capabilities to influence pressing issues in society. What Steve wanted to talk to Nick about was a design competition. He kind of pitched the idea to us and we were really excited right from the beginning. Um, so we kind of drafted out some potentials, what we think um, kind of was special about the site and about what the competition could kind of bring to the table and bring to like an architecture and design conversation. Um, and we kind of hit it off from there. And, um, you know, Steve and I talked, you know, back and forth pretty much throughout the whole thing. One thing though. It wasn't a, a, a design competition uh, to build the winning uh, submission. It wasn't a, a winner build scenario. In other words, how tall, how wide, what kind of footings, all the literal practicalities that go into building a house. Steve wasn't much interested in those. The participants probably wanted, or, or it makes it easier, I'm sure, if there's more restrictions or confinement in what they can do. But, um, but it's just not as, as interesting or compelling. Or just, it, it's not where I wanted to start the conversation. I didn't want to start it on, you know, should we do a Spanish house or like, you know, a modern house or, you know, that, that's just not important. What was important to Steve and to Nick, and this was reflected in the brief they gave to the entrance, was thinking hard and getting a variety of designers to think hard about stretching the accepted notions of what a house could be. On that one unusual plot overlooking Los Angeles, sure, but by extension anywhere, now, and in the future. We definitely wanted to go in the direction of let's look at this as a concept. Um, we had some participants reach out to us, you know, ask about setbacks, ask about height restrictions, um, and we would give vague guidelines. Um, we, we wanted it to be something that was potential, um, that, that could happen, it was doable, but we wanted people to really push the boundaries of what is happening today. We didn't want it to be... Um, People submitting entries for a competition and uh, one of them is chosen and then you, you hit the go button and you start building it. Um, it was always meant to take more thought than that. Um, it was meant to challenge the construction industry. It was meant to challenge um, the design industry and kind of push for things that we're not seeing yet. So it was definitely a concept. It was, a, it was an ideas competition. Um, it was only about five weeks long, the competition, which in terms of an architecture competition, it is relatively short, um, but we wanted it to feel like a charrette. Um, we wanted people to get ideas out and present something that, um, you know, was not down to construction documents. You know, we're not super interested in um, exactly how things are going to be built, but more of the idea and bringing in, you know, a new, fresh concept. That tilt toward experimentation wasn't only because it's the way Steve happens to lean. It's also because there's a rich tradition of experimental architecture in the area, a tradition of which the chemosphere was only a part. 
A chance to get their hands on that neighborhood was more than some of the entrants could resist. You know, that brief has moments of uh, recalling the history of the kinds of houses that have been built in the hills, the experimental houses in, in Los Angeles. And so we felt like this client and this sponsor, as well as the jury, which was a remarkably good jury, they would all be inclined to selecting a project that was in the experimental tradition. That's Jason Payne. He's a designer and an associate professor of architecture at UCLA and the principal of the L.A. design firm Hirsuta. He headed the Hirsuta team that entered the last house on Mulholland competition, along with Michael Zimmerman, Joseph Giampietro, and Ryosuke Imaeda. The entries were judged by a panel that included Pritzker winner Tom Main, Ron Radzner of Marmol Radzner, and a couple of dozen others. And when the dust had settled, the Hirsuta entry, called the Ambivalent House, had emerged as the winner. Why did they call it the Ambivalent House? The answer has to do with what we see in it and what the designers hope we take from it. Now all this is, I admit, hard to describe without seeing the thing. There's a rendering of it in the show notes and you really should take a look. Jason has described it this way. A spheroid floating low to the ground on a single column. The form is the inexact offspring of more geometrically perfect roundhouses already achieved. A little less elegantly, one design site called it a shiny rotating blob. Seen head-on from the street, it looks in the renderings like, well, it looks like a pig head. I mean no disrespect by this. I suspect Jason wouldn't be offended anyway. Some people online have said that it's ugly. And that's perfectly good with us. We're, we're the, design, uh, the design team, we're happy with that. We um, know that that indicates a certain kind of uncertainty, a certain perhaps shock of the new. And it's, it's only natural that people would see a form like that and, and some would not like it. But, we, but the idea would be that over time, they would get used to it, however strange a form it is. Over time and seeing it multiple times, they would get more and more used to it. Hopefully it never settles into a steady state in terms of uh, whatever meaning it's projecting outward to any given person. Um, but that their feelings and their attitudes and their wonderment would, would actually change. The ambivalent house was the winning entry, but of course it wasn't the only one. There were about 500 others. I asked Nick and Steve what sorts of common threads they saw running through those entries. As we looked through the submission, there were definitely kind of categories that projects started to fall into. Um, you had people who really played up, I want to innovate and I want to I want to address how people are going to live in the future. Um, things like the, the Internet of Things, just having like a smart home that's connected in every sense of the word. Um, you started to see a lot of um, architecture and a lot of kind of user experience go in that direction. One of the interesting themes was um, the whole notion of uh, what what a what a house what a family is who lives in a house who cohabitates in a house and how that changes and how the house you'll see there's some of these submissions where the house actually changes to adapt to the needs uh, or the, the changes in who's living in the house. So whether you know it's a, a typical nuclear family or if it's a, a, a couple or 
you know, maybe with their parents or just people cohabitating. Uh, there were there were several entries where the house actually adapted uh, to meet the needs of, of, of the inhabitants. A few of the entries, um, you know, could could physically sink into the ground. Um, there was one that could had different levels: um, one for living, one for working, um, and another one for like leisure and entertaining. So. You're, you're talking about drastic measures of, you know, an entire structure basically on hydraulics being able to move up and down. A lot of the entries acknowledge the unusual duality of the site, the push and pull between private life and public access, between observing and being observed. In a sense, the site has two constituencies. Steve, the guy who will one day live there, and the tourists, hikers, and residents who already claim a kind of stake in it. The aspect of privacy was addressed um, in a countless number of the proposals, but it, I think it was done well in the sense of there was a great element of kind of observation from the house. Um, Looking from your house out onto the city of L.A. Um, also views kind of looking backwards up at the sign, but then trying to make the house um, adaptable or, um, you know, being able to change so that people from the outside, you know, it, it is your home. It is where you, you know, have private time. The judges felt that all these notions adaptability, flexibility, malleability, were best expressed in the ambivalent house, a house that would never settle comfortably into one meaning, in a city that itself never stops moving. We did think about the future reception of the house in Los Angeles, 5, 10, 20, 50 years, and that largely led the form, it largely led our approach to iconicity um, to be very direct about it, what it led to was our commitment to making a form that was, let's say, an empty signifier or, or a floating signifier in that it, if it had any references or any meaning, like if, if any reference was emanating from this form to a public or an individual or a public, that it would be changing and different. Like each person would see a different thing. And over time, ideally, they would see yet another different thing, but that it would never land. The, the, the response and the reception, references to do with that form, hopefully would never land. They would never land on a final interpretation. Now, right here. This seems like the place to say that while it is in the province of the designer to think of the house as a signifier, empty or otherwise, for the homeowner, even a forward-looking one like Steve, the house is something else. It's the place where he lives, eats, sleeps, cooks, does laundry. It's the place from which he takes out the garbage. This is the difference between, say, a concept car and a production car. You might admire the hell out of a concept car for its sleek lines and unimaginable accelerating power, but that doesn't necessarily mean you want to drive your dog to the vet in it. That's, that's the trick with experimental buildings, is um, 
figuring out where you're going to leave functionality behind, like what, what you're willing to sacrifice in terms of function for the larger concept car, let's say. We designed it to win. We designed it to be built. Um, you know, whether that'll ever happen or not is a, is a very open question. But um, uh, so we did design it to so that one could and would live in it. Um, but there are difficulties. Yes, there are difficulties. There would be. I asked Jason to give me an example, and here's the one he cited. For background, you should know that the ambivalent house revolves. But not like those revolving restaurants that were so popular for a time in the 1960s. It's one of the trends of the swinging 60s to find dining rooms in the clouds where it's not chips with everything but views of cities. Here at London's post office tower, the restaurant rotates 34 floors high with a cocktail bar immediately above and kitchens on top. No, the ambivalent house moves slowly. Really slowly. So slowly, Jason wrote in one article that, I'm quoting here, actual live movement would not be discernible to the senses at all, instead only to memory and habit. What would that mean in practical terms? Well, picture this. The mass of the house, the blob part, would be built around a central core. And uh, it doesn't move. It, the core actually inside doesn't move. So the, the outer, the bulk of the house is rotating, but there's this, this, this compact core at the center that doesn't, and the kitchen is wrapped around that. So the kitchen shape itself is not your typical triangular, you know, triangulating between your appliances. It's it won't, it, that we couldn't do that. We couldn't make that work. Um, and so one would notice that probably because one's always in the kitchen. The kitchen's the center of most people's houses. Um, so this kitchen is going to perform a bit, a bit differently. What this means, again, in practical terms, sorry, Jason, is that Steve might be in the room where he's been used over many weeks to doing kitchen things only to find that that room is now a not-kitchen, that the kitchen has moved on to another part of the house. Or, more accurately, I guess, that the house itself has moved on and left the kitchen behind. Exactly. And so, yes. And so, uh, now, remember, it's rotating so slowly that it would be over the course of, like, weeks that one would see that. But we did have to then design the surrounding spaces as pretty much open and self-similar because, you know, part of the year, one of those spaces is going to be the ideal dining room because it's a, it's proximity to the kitchen and then to half the year later, it's gone, you know, it's on the other side of the house and one doesn't want to have to go all the way around to the dining room from the kitchen. So each of the big spaces that slowly align with that kitchen can be essentially reprogrammed as the dining room. Now that's another complication. It's another, uh, what would you call it? Um, uh, irritation to lifestyle, right? We know that. <laughs> We're fine. I mean, <laughs> takes a certain kind of person to want to live in a house like this. We know that. I asked Steve the obvious question. Is he that person? Would he actually want to live in a house that so prioritized experimentation over the daily exigencies of living? He was diplomatic about it. But the answer, more or less, was no. Living in New York and in, and in Southern California, 
the one thing about coming to Southern California, and you see, I have the windows open, uh, indoor, outdoor. It's it's you know I can meld the two. It's they're not not to be separate. And uh, that house, uh, I don't think afforded for much of that. Uh, so th I felt that that you know that particular aspect would 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 be difficult for me. And also, um, I'm interested in the community. And I and and I and I wondered about how uh, I would be able to interact with the action on the street from that house, and uh, and so so that that would that would be a concern of mine. You know, it's it, we'll go up there later, and you'll see there's just a lot of people. It's a very active street, and that's really cool. Um, and you know, a lot of people are tourists or hiking. Everybody's got great energy. Everybody's there to be fun and, and you know be happy or whatever uh, so as a person I would like to be able to tap into that energy uh, in, in you know some way this must be the painful thing about being an architectural experimentalist like Jason you push you prod gently of course and respectfully toward the new but as often as not, what it comes down to for clients is something ineffable and ancient. A feeling. No more than that, just a feeling. For what they think of as home. And for most of us, ambivalence isn't it. We want routine and familiarity and the comforts those things provide. That may be a failure of nerve in the abstract. But we don't live in the abstract. We live in our homes. Jason's an easygoing guy, and he says he's okay knowing that the last house on Mulholland won't be the ambivalent house. He does admit that he hopes if Steve doesn't build it, as seems sure he won't, somebody else will, on some other less special plot. But I asked him to indulge me in a little thought exercise. I asked him to think forward, years into the future, to imagine what Steve might, at the end of his life, be able to look back on, if he did choose to throw everyday living to the winds and embrace that eccentric, ever so slowly revolving vision of ambivalence. He would be reflecting back on years and years and years of slow rotation. It's really kind of cool if you think about it. Um, he would have, we have thought about this, he would have different memories of different seasons, if I can explain that. I mean, it... One summer, things would be oriented in one place. In the same way at my house, in summer, the sun does certain things on my patio. Does that every summer. The sun and my patio don't move in relation to one and well, the sun does, but it's the same summer after summer after summer. He wouldn't, so I have memories of summer, but they always have the light in the same place, let's say. Um, he wouldn't have that. He would have different summers, different winters, different springs and falls. And after, let's say, dozens of those, wouldn't that be interesting? Instead of four seasons, because you relate a season to your house in, in some sense, he would have dozens of seasons. No summer would have ever been the same. So, I, I mean, that's, that, that, was, that was always our intention. One would hope he likes it. 